All right, hey everybody, page 17 still, but we'll be uh, finished with page 17 and finish page 18 relative, or excuse me, page 19 relatively quickly, relative to the way we've been doing everything else, but page 17, and we're looking at how to get the most out of your Bible and continuing our survey of the Bible almost to the end of the first of the three parts of the class, survey understanding the Bible, and then applying the Bible. We are in the New Testament, and we're looking at the Acts and the Epistles of the Apostles, you see at the top of page 17. And we left off last week looking at the conversion of Paul. I actually made a few comments about several of the last few paragraphs, but I want to pick up with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus who's known to us as the Apostle Paul. And I mentioned last week that he's known as Saul and Paul because it was not unusual in uh, the first century for uh, a Jew to have both a Jewish name and a Roman name since they were under Roman government, Roman rule. And Paul then was his Roman name. Saul was his given name as a a Jew. Uh, Why he chose Paul... Uh, is not known, but I mentioned last week that in uh, Acts chapter 13 is the first time he's called Paul. Uh, He's referred to as Saul, and then in parentheses in verse 9 of Acts 13, uh, it says, uh, who was also called Paul, Saul also called Paul. And that's just two verses after he had had an encounter with a Roman official named Sergius Paulus. And he had had some success in giving the gospel to Sergius Paulus. And so it may be, and some speculate, that that's the reason he chose the Roman name Paul. But in any case, uh, you'll find in Gentile contexts, uh, which was the bulk of Paul's ministry, that he called himself uh, Paul rather than Saul. So at the beginning, he saw Saul the Jew, Saul uh, who is consenting to the death of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7, and they stone Stephen, and the first time we're introduced to this one, Saul of Tarsus, is there, and it says they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named named Saul, and then it tells us a few verses later that uh, he was consenting to, uh, pleased with the martyrdom of Stephen. And so that sets the stage for him in Acts chapter 9, going to Damascus to hunt down Christians and to uh, kill, have Christians, uh, uh, some of them killed. So he's on his way to the road, uh, uh, on the road to Damascus, and then the Lord himself appears to uh, Saul and uh, speaks to him directly. He's blinded uh, for temporarily, and uh, this is his conversion experience. So a spectacular conversion of Saul that God has in mind uh, in order to use him later as Paul to carry out a major part of the expansion of the church under this one Paul. Paul's career includes having been trained by a a renowned Jewish teacher named Gamaliel. So his expertise in the law, his expertise in the Old Testament, comes from his upbringing and his training at the feet of this, this one named Gamaliel. Uh, it is said that Paul probably knew five languages. And that's one of the reasons that he can say in 1 Corinthians 14, 
I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. No, really. That he can speak in languages uh, more than more than any of them. And we'll actually look at 1 Corinthians 14 when we get to part 2 in a couple of weeks because we're going to uh, look at that passage and how to, how to interpret it as part of the interpretive uh, principles that we're going to learn together. So Paul spoke, uh, it's estimated, five, five languages. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. And so he was providentially, by God, prepared for what it was the Lord called him to do. And that's the way God operates. He prepares people, even before they become Christians, for what he's going to have them do after they become Christians. And he did that with Paul in, in his providence. In Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5. God says of, of Jeremiah, Before you were born, I set you apart. And then in the life of the one that God uses, he gives them experiences and he gives them abilities that he is going to use toward his ends, God's ends, for God's purposes. Now, uh, that has always meant a great deal to me personally, that God operates that way. That God takes the good, the bad, and the ugly of your past and redeems it and uses it for his ends. And it's a lesson if people could get their mind and their arms around that uh, that would help a lot of people as they think about their past. Maybe a past they don't want to think about. Uh, and all of the things that they've done, all the things that have been done to them, and God uses God uses all of that. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Ephesians 2 and verse 10. It's the verse we don't quote because we always stop at verse 9. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, uh, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then we stop there. That's how you're saved, by grace through faith, not by works. But then verse 10 says that uh, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. That's what verse 10 says. That we are God's workmanship. And the Greek word that's translated workmanship is, the Greek word is poiema. So we are God's poiema. And some translations have that as God's masterpiece, God's craftsmanship, God's work of art. But this is God working on the individual to fashion them and to make them into what they would, would, would become. And so that's true of every person here, as much as it was true of Jeremiah, as much as it was true of Saul of Tarsus, that God uses all of what he allows providentially for what he calls us to do. So be encouraged by that. And that's, uh, that's Paul now. What is Paul called to do? to be God's mouthpiece to the Gentiles. And Paul is going to give his resume later in Ephesians chapter 3. And he says, this is what the Lord called me to do, uh, to explain the, the mystery of God's grace and to proclaim the riches of Christ to the, the Gentiles, those two, those two things. So God uses him as this uh, special emissary. And as a result... Then Paul goes on these journeys that we're going to talk about in a bit uh, on page 19. But he goes on these journeys, journeys proclaiming Christ, seeing people converted to Christ, formed into 
into churches. And then he writes letters back to those churches. And he wrote nearly half of the New Testament. So this guy that's on page 17 and the Acts chapter 9 passage, Saul of Tarsus, ends up uh, being a, the key figure in the gospel going to the Gentiles and to uh, and ends up writing nearly half of the, the New Testament. So Acts 9 is the conversion of Paul. Acts 10, you got Peter's vision of food. I mentioned that last week. So God gives this vision to Peter. And the point of the vision is that there are these unclean, these animals that had in the Old Testament been pronounced unclean, that Jews were not to eat. And Peter sees these in this sheet that has these four corners representing the four corners of the of the earth. And the moral of this, the point of this vision is Peter kill and eat. That you can you can participate now with these things that had previously been considered unclean, including Gentiles, Gentile dogs, as the Jews would uh, think of them. And as, as part of this vision, God says, I want you to go to a place, I want you to go to Joppa. And you see in that paragraph there, at Joppa, today's Tel Aviv, Israel. Now, Tel Aviv is the capital of Israel, but this is where this is the spot where Peter was called to go and God gives him this uh, vision full of food with the, with the, that the Mosaic Law declared unclean. And he directed Peter to the home of a Gentile named Cornelius, where many of his Gentile friends and relatives were gathered. And thus God began to teach that the church was not to be for Jews only. About this time, James, Jesus' physical half-brother, wrote the book of James for the... Jewish believers who were scattered throughout the Roman world, and it's probably the first New Testament book written, the book of, of James. So Peter uh, does that. Cornelius and his household are converted. They are given the Holy Spirit, just like the Jews were back in Acts chapter 2. They're given the Holy Spirit, we know, because they spoke in tongues, just like they did in Acts chapter 2, and Peter testifies to that. So there's no reason Peter is now convinced that Gentiles should not be welcomed into, into the church. But here we mention Jude, uh, Jesus, or excuse me, James, Jesus' physical half brother. Uh, so what about Jesus having brothers? Because uh, Roman Catholicism says that Mary is was not just the Virgin Mary at the time of the conception and birth of Jesus. But she is the ever virgin, the perpetual virgin. So that's what Roman Catholicism teaches. How do they marry? How do they do what? How do they marry that with the scriptures? No pun intended. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Very good. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, reconciling that with the scriptures. It's clear that, that Joseph and Mary had other children. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Where is that? It's in the Ragu Bible, isn't it? It is no. the Ragu Bible. You know what the Ragu Bible is? It's in there. <laughs> I just know it's in there. Okay, that's the Ragu Bible. There was that old Ragu commercial. You know, where's the oregano? It's in there. It's in there. All right. But Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six. <clears throat> In verse 1, Mark 6 and verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. 
accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that's been given him? That he does even does miracles. Verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? All right, so let's just stop here. He's in his hometown. And they're going, this is, a, this is a guy, we remember him. Remember him? He always aced all the tests in, in elementary school. But he's the carpenter's son. And this is Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? So this is what you know. Mark chapter talk, it names his brothers and says he's got sisters as as well. So what does Roman Catholicism do with that? Uh, the best that they can do is say that these were cousins, that these were relatives of, of his. But they're insistent that Jesus had no brothers and sisters, but there's nothing in the Bible that would necessitate that Mary was a virgin beyond Jesus being the oldest of the children of, uh, of Joseph and Mary, and uh, they had other children after that. Yes, sir? To amplify that, that uh, the conception, Mary brought forth her firstborn son. Yeah. Why was it firstborn if there yeah, was exactly. a second? Yeah, third? you know, firstborn usually implies, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Very good. So uh, I'm going to say some more about uh, Roman Catholicism uh, here in a, in a bit because Roman Catholic teaching, what would become Roman Catholic teaching, shows up early in the history of the church and has to be addressed in some of the New Testament books. So Acts chapter 10, then Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, signifying that now the gospel is not just for one people, one race of people, the Jews, but also for the, uh, the Gentiles. It's not just for one nation, but for all nations. And remember, I told you that the book of Acts, if you want to, if you can remember one thing about the book of Acts, it's that it's a transition. It's transitioning from one nation to all nations, from Israel to the church, from the apostles to the priesthood of believers, from law to, to grace. It's transitioning to, to all of that. In Acts chapter 11, Paul and Barnabas are in uh, Antioch. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11 that uh, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in this place, at Antioch. Uh, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Uh, And that's where uh, Barnabas was sent to go from the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas was sent to go and help lead the growing church at, at Antioch. And he recruited, you see in that paragraph there, Paul to work with him there. And I've always been fascinated at the fact that Barnabas recruits this guy to come and help him. Uh, Barnabas, I did a sermon on Barnabas a couple of years ago. We did a series called Portraits of Grace, and they were just biographies of biblical characters. And one of them was Barnabas. And Barnabas is quite a guy. Um, son of encouragement is his uh, Barnabas is actually a nickname that means that son of encouragement and the Bible says of him that he was a good man and he was apparently a humble man as well because here he's got the he's got a mega church going in in Antioch but 
he recognizes apparently that this is more than he can handle. And so he sends for Saul, for Paul, to come and help him with the work. And not only that, uh, he's he's the main guy for a period of time at Antioch, is, is Barnabas. But shortly after Saul arrives, it becomes not Barnabas and Saul, but Paul and Barnabas. That, in fact, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 42... You find them no longer referred to as Barnabas and Paul or Barnabas and Saul, but Paul and Barnabas. Paul's always first. And from there on, you always see Paul taking the lead, and uh, Barnabas and Barnabas is the one who sent for him to do that very, that very thing. Then in Acts chapter 12, you've got Peter again. I mentioned last week that I think the reason Luke uh, tells us about Peter now in Acts chapter 12 is because this is the last time you're going to hear about Peter in the book of Acts. And he wants us to know that he's alive and well, even though he's been imprisoned a few times. And uh, he's the one who said back in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men, even though we've been told not to preach the gospel. So he's willing to lay it on the line. He's already started to pay a price because he's been imprisoned more than once. And here we find another occasion where he's imprisoned, but... Now, attention is going to turn to Paul and Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. But Luke is just letting us know he's still alive. And, of course, we know Peter had later ministry and wrote First and First and Second Peter in our Bibles. So bottom of page 17, Peter's imprisoned and released miraculously by an angel. Herod began persecuting Christians. He had the apostle James, the brother of John, killed. He also had Peter arrested and imprisoned. But believers began to pray and Peter was miraculously released from prison by an angel. Now, that story in Acts chapter 12, where you've got these believers praying for Peter, who's imprisoned. And if you've ever read that story in Acts chapter 12, it's, it's humorous, actually. Because you've got these Christians gathered praying for Peter. And then the Lord miraculously has him released from prison. And Peter goes to the place where they're praying. And he knocks on the door, and the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door. And she can't believe it. And she runs back all excited and says, Peter's at the door. And the people who are praying for Peter to be released go, it can't be Peter, he's in jail. (laughs) Surely our prayers couldn't have been answered here. And it takes them a while to finally come to their senses and recognize this really is Peter and let the guy actually come into the room. So it is kind of humorous. They're praying for that very thing. God answers the prayer, but it takes them a little bit to actually believe that it's happening. All right, on page 18 then, you can fill in from page 17. I'll give it to you, but from page 17 in that rectangular box on the left, what Acts 1 through 12 uh, is about. Acts 1 is the ascension, ascension. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit. So ascension, Holy Spirit. Acts 3 through 5, uh, you can just put arrest. 6 through 8, deacons. So ascension, Holy Spirit, arrest, deacons. Acts 9 is Paul's conversion. Acts 10 is Peter's vision. 
Acts 11 is Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. And then Acts 12 is Peter's release. So ascension, Holy Spirit. Arrest or persecution. Deacons. Conversion of Paul. Peter's vision. Barnabas and Saul. And Peter's release. Now you see on that page there, at the top, you've got a timeline. And you've got the first century. First 100 years. uh, And after Christ. And you see the book of Acts and the period that it covers of about uh, 25 years there. And chapters 1 through 12 are primarily centered on the ministry of Peter. Chapters 13 to 28 are centered on the ministry primarily of, of Paul. All right? So page 19. Look at that. Turn the page. And when you come to Acts 13, you have the first journey of Paul and Barnabas, the first missionary journey of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark later? Who is also the nephew of Barnabas? And also whose mother uh, apparently housed many of the disciples. In fact, that house in Acts chapter 12 where Peter went back to may have been the house of uh, Mark's mother. Um, So he comes from a prominent early Christian family with Barnabas as his uncle and his mother as a, a hospitable Christian woman. And Paul, Barnabas, and and Mark go on this first journey. Now, they go from Antioch, where Barnabas had been sent from Jerusalem because the church was growing there. And then he sent for Paul. And then the church sent them out to spread the gospel to other places. So they are sent by the church in uh, Acts chapter 13. The Bible tells us that they're sent. It says uh, the church in Antioch in verse 1. Verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So the, the placing of the hands on them, commissioning them, for the work that God has called them to do. So you'll see that happen. We've done that here. You'll see the laying on of hands to commission someone for a particular for a particular work. And that's what they're doing here for Barnabas and, and Saul. Now I want to point that out I'm pointing that out because I want you to know that they were sent by the church. And they go and they visit a number of cities. We'll talk about those cities in a minute. But then they come back. And chapter 14 and verse 26 says this. They sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. 
So in chapter 13 and verse 3, they're commissioned. Hands are laid on them. They're sent off. Now at the end of chapter 14, they're returning back to the place that sent them. And it says, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how God and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So you you might say, in fact, you should say that Antioch is Barnabas and Saul's home church. And their home church sent them out and for a, a task. And they went and performed that task. And they came back to the church and they reported to the church what they had done. So the church sent them and then they uh, gave an account to the church. They were accountable to the church for that sent them for what they did. And in between, as you read chapters 13 and 14, guess what they did? They established churches. So they went and they preached the gospel in various cities. And those who were converted were gathered into, into churches. Now, one of the places that they went was the province of Galatia. Chapters 13 and 14 tell us. And Galatia is just that. It is a province. It's not a city. It's a province that contains cities. And some of those cities were Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. And as you read Acts 13 and 14, you read about their ministry there. People are converted and churches are established in in those cities. And then later, Paul, in fact, not much later, Paul's going to have to write a letter to the churches of Galatia, these first churches that they founded. And that letter is the book of Galatians in your New Testament. And Galatians was probably written in 49 A.D., 49 A.D. And that's just a few years after uh, Barnabas and Paul have established these churches. Now, here's why that's important. It's important for a lot of reasons. One, it gives you an understanding, a clue as to how your New Testament was formed. As you read through the book of Acts and you see these travels of Paul and him going to these cities and establishing these churches, you'll find several of those cities mentioned later in your New Testament as the titles of of books, like Thessalonians. Thessalonica is one of the cities he went to. Or Philippians, Philippi is one of the cities he went to. And so these letters are written to churches in those places where Paul had gone primarily. In the case of Romans, it's written to the church at Rome. Paul didn't found the church at, at Rome. But he was planning to go there, and so he wrote in advance a letter to them, preparing them for his his visit. So most of what you have in your uh, New Testament are these letters that Paul is writing back to these churches that were established when he went on these missionary missionary trips. And Galatians is one of those. And within just a few years, the Galatians are in trouble. And If you've read the six chapters of Galatians, you know why they're in trouble. They're in trouble because they believe something different, or some of them have believed something different than what Paul taught them. They've got people coming and telling them 
that you need to add the law and observance of the law to the gospel. And here's what Paul thinks about that. In uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. All right, so stop there. You know, this is not just a different version of the gospel. Six of one, half dozen of the other. Some people like it this way, some people like it that way. No, Paul says there's one gospel. And I preached it to you. And you've now got some people telling you something different. What they're telling you is not the gospel. And he goes on. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, now, you just have to think about what's being said here. Look, I don't care who's telling you this. That's what he's telling you. I don't care how much you like them. I don't care how sweet they are. I don't care how popular they are. I don't care if it's an angel. If we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Well, you just think about the letters to the editor that Christianity Today would get. For somebody saying, I mean, where is the Christian love? I mean, we don't all agree on everything, Paul. But I mean, and, and that's his opening words, by the way. This is chapter one. And he says, hello, (laughs) it's me, Paul, grace and peace, and then what? And then verse 9, as we have already said, now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So, guys and gals, that ought to dispel the notion that as... My esteemed theology professor, Dr. McCune, used to say that we ought to strive to be more Christian than Christ or more pious than Paul. Piety says, you know, there's all this Christian love and all that, and what that means is never say anything bad about anybody. But Paul says some really bad things about these people because they're perverting the gospel. So I told you that Roman Catholicism will rear its head very early on. Roman Catholicism doesn't start till centuries later. Contrary to Roman Catholicism, it doesn't start till centuries later. But I don't want to show of hands. I just want you to think about this. But does Roman Catholicism teach the gospel that Paul taught and preached? Here he's taking on people who are adding elements of the law to the gospel. And 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 works that have to be done in addition to the grace that God has given in Christ. And Roman Catholicism, not just Roman Catholicism, 
But since that's the largest representative under the umbrella of Christianity, we'll deal with that. Roman Catholicism is a works-oriented approach to a relationship with God. And any works-oriented approach to a relationship with God, Paul would say, is not the gospel. And he would be extremely harsh. He would be just as harsh with that. And if it's possible, perhaps more so. I don't know how you can... But if it's possible, perhaps only because of all the power that has accrued uh, over the years to an institution that has led so many people astray to a false a false gospel. Now, why do we say it's a false gospel? I'll get you in one second. Thanks, Sheila. So why do we say it's a false gospel? Because in Roman Catholicism, you are you don't enter into a relationship with God on the basis strictly of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and then have that relationship for eternity. You don't have that. What you have is an initial relationship with God that has to be maintained by adhering to the sacraments of the church. And I'll remind you about the key sacrament of the church that is required to maintain your relationship with God. But yes, Eula. So they're not taught to, to read the Bible? Well, this is true as well. Um, uh, the, the average Roman Catholic doesn't know the Bible. And they're not encouraged to know the Bible because, according to Roman Catholicism, salvation is in the church. So salvation is in your good standing with the institution. And if you're in good standing with the institution by virtue of participating in the sacraments of the institution, then you'll go to heaven. But it's your attachment to the institution. It's not your knowledge of what God has said in his word and then your obedience to that. We, the church, are telling you what that is and we've laid out these sacraments, these works for you to do in order for you to have that. So no, the average Roman Catholic does not know the Bible. And I can prove that to you from experience. Uh, When I was in 10th grade, when I was in 10th grade, I spent two weeks at a Catholic high school. Two weeks. Why? Well, in my 8th and ninth grade year, I had gone to intercity Baptist school where, in God's grace, I ended up graduating. But at the start of my 10th grade year, we didn't have a ride for me to get to school. My father had died a couple years earlier. My mom had a job, and we could, they couldn't get me there. And so a bunch of the kids on my block went to Mount Carmel Catholic School in Wyandotte. It's now defunct, but it existed at the time, and a lot of the kids went there. I played hockey with some of these guys. I was friends with them. I could ride with them. And my mom reasoned it's better than going to the public school. And so I go to this Catholic school, and a couple of things happened. One, uh, the, what I'm going to tell you right now uh, doesn't go to Catholics not knowing the Bible, it goes to Pentecostal kids not knowing Catholicism. Because <clears throat> I had never been in a Catholic church in my life. <clears throat> and we had Mass a couple of times a week for those two weeks I was there. And the first time we go in, I'm at the back of the line going into this church. And I'm kind of watching what's going on up at the front, and I can see people you know, kind of dipping, but they're not going all the way to the down. I don't know exactly what they're doing, but I'm just trying to get my bearings here. And as we get a little bit closer, I see that there's this laver 
and people are dipping their hand in it, and they're doing something, but I can't tell what they're doing. And so I get there, and I get the hand in the water, and I don't know what to do. And I look around, and I wipe it on my pants. (laughs) And I go up. That's the truth. And I go up, and I walk into the most beautiful place I have ever been in my life. And you can, I could tell, I remember as a 10th grader being there and just being awed and feeling like you were in the presence of God. I remember thinking that. And I can see why that can have such a hold on someone as you come into that beautiful place that just, that, that seems holy. But I was sitting about four rows back in the pew as they started. I was sitting in a pew by myself. And the priest comes out and says, peace be with you. And everybody on cue says, and also with you. And they're going through this routine, and I'm looking for a program. It's like, how do they know what to say? And they're just doing it. And they, I have no idea. So he goes going through, and then he's praying. And they're like not standing, and they're not sitting. I can't tell what they're doing. And I'm looking around while he's praying. And I look under the pew and I see this contraption there. And so I need to pull this thing out. And so he's praying and I'm trying to this thing. And I'm grabbing it. And then I get it. And do you know how those old world churches echo? So it echoes all over the place. So my first time in a Roman Catholic church was a disaster. But here's the part about not knowing the Bible. Religion class. They called it religion class. Tenth grade, I go to religion class. And the religion teacher is asking questions. All right. And these are the questions. So who led the Israelites through the Red Sea? Crickets. (laughs) Nobody's saying anything. And so I go, uh, Moses. And he goes, yep. And then he says, uh, so who built the ark? More crickets. Uh, Noah. Yep. And we go through about ten of these. And nobody's saying anything. And they're questions like that. And after we're done, I've got these classmates coming to me. Go on. Whoa. <laughs> Like you're a Bible scholar, it's unbelievable. Where did you get all of that? Right? Now this is not second grade. This is tenth grade. So your your average Roman Catholic does not know the Bible, and they're not taught to read the Bible because if you're in the good graces of the church, you're in the good graces of, of God. Somebody else had a hand up? Well, I was just gonna say that, that what they do is they teach you the catechism. Yeah. Which is which is a series of facts as they see them. Sure. Um, that they that's what they consider relevant. Yeah. Those those pieces of information that are. And, a, and after you complete catechism, you're able to participate in your first confirmation. Okay. Communion. So first communion, which is a huge deal. First communion. So we'll talk about first communion in a second. Yes. Um, in the word it says that you're not supposed to add or subtract no. to the word 
any religion other than follow Christ born again. Um, Catholics say, for example, does that mean that um, we don't know? God knows the heart. But when they're following this kind of way, does, does that mean that they're not? Yeah, I can't speak to individual people. No. Um, but what I can speak to is this is what the officials are teaching, and this is contrary to the Bible. So that's what I can speak to. You know, you take somebody like Marco Rubio. Um, I've heard his testimony. He's been in an evangelical church, He's, but he's of Cuban descent, so he's all Roman Catholic. So he's got, he sometimes attends this community evangelical church sometimes the Roman Catholic church so he's Roman Catholic but he knows the gospel and uh, if you if you hear his testimony he knows an evangelical gospel now does he know that his the Roman Catholic church contradicts that gospel that I don't know so I can't speak to individuals uh, and I wouldn't try to do that but this is what the church teaches and when you complete that catechism, you get your first communion. And first communion is not communion like we do. So it's not a memorial of the death, of the body and blood of Jesus' sacrifice for us. But rather, it's a reenactment of the crucifixion of Jesus. According to Roman Catholicism, Jesus is being re-crucified during the Mass. So when one participates in Mass, one is eating the body of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus, according to Roman Catholicism, which is changed when the priest holds up the wafer, the host, and consecrates it. And only a priest can do this. And does the same with the cup. And then it is transubstantiated. The substance is changed into the body and blood of Christ. And this is their own term. It is, he is being crucified again. So Christ is crucified every time Mass is observed, says Roman Catholicism. Now, that's this work that one has to do. One has to have the blood of Christ cover their sins committed since the last time they had their sins covered. So your sins are covered and then covered again and then covered again. And you you got to die on Sunday, right? You got to die in the pew there too. Okay? So if you commit if and you got two types of sins, you got venial sins and you got mortal sins. And if you die with a mortal sin to your account, then there's no hope for you. And that is why in Roman Catholicism, suicide sends one directly to hell. Because that's self-murder, that's a mortal sin, no opportunity to have that covered, and so it follows in Roman Catholicism that one would go to hell. Before you were supposed to go to communion, at least that's what it used to be, you had to go to confession. Okay. And then you got the absolution, and then you were supposedly pure enough to receive the body and blood of Christ, Okay. provided between Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning. Well, and then confession is another of the sacraments. So there's seven sacraments of the church. Confession is one of those. So confession to a priest. So you don't go directly to God. You go to a priest who goes to God for you. And uh, and then another of the sacraments is, um, is the Mass. So uh, marriage is a sacrament. 
Um, ordination is a sacrament. So some of the sacraments don't apply to everybody. But the ones that matter for salvation purposes are baptism. That's the first sacrament. And then, uh, and then the Eucharist or Mass, confession, and then last rites is uh, one of the uh, penance is another of the sacraments. So that's what the priest assigns to you to do in order to uh, take care of uh, the uh, temporal results of your uh, of your sins. So, uh, so in Roman Catholicism, it's another gospel because it's adding to. The, the grace of Christ. And there are others beyond Roman Catholicism that do this. Um, my Pentecostal background, we believed that you could be saved, but then sometime in the future you could not be saved. You could lose it. Most, most religions and most denominations teach a version of that. So you need to understand, friend, if you believe in the grace of God only through Christ, you're weird. That's the minority. It's the minority even under the umbrella of Christianity. So what is it that would cause someone to lose their salvation? Well, he just did something or some things that are just too bad. And that's what I was taught when I was a kid, that you can just do some things and you can do them long enough that you'll lose your salvation. And as growing up as a kid, that was not indication that you were never saved. No, you were saved. But you're now not saved by virtue of something you did or failed to do. Well, what is that but works religion? And we had our own version of Mass. We had the altar call. Now, some of you have grown up with the altar call. And you go, you know, I never thought of it that way. Well, think of it that way. Because, and I think I've said that in this in this class, but what's at the front of the room? Like, you know, when we go in the auditorium, we have worship on Sunday. What's up at the front? There's a platform. Um, there's a cross. But there's no altar. You know, so I joke that anybody gets married at our place, nobody can get left at the altar. <laughs> don't worry, you won't get left at the altar. <laughs> we don't have one. <laughs> and why don't we have an altar? Because what's done at an altar? So we don't have one. The closest thing we have to an altar is the cross at the front. And that's the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. But when I was a kid, we had altar calls and you came up to the altar. And you prayed to have your sins put under the blood. Now when you come to Jesus, how many of your sins are under the blood? So I know that now. But when you're a kid and you're told come to the altar and get your sins put under the blood, and I'm thinking... I've got a bunch of sin. And so I'd be at the altar as a kid. I was at the altar a lot. And as a teenager, I was at the altar a lot. And never had any peace. Never had any peace. That I had a relationship with God. And in fact, I'm convinced that I didn't. And overall, even though I had lots to deal with at the altar, overall I was relatively a good kid. But... 
sins of thought, sins of word, sins of deed, sins of omission, all of that. And I've got no way to account for all of that. And so never had any peace and didn't get saved until the age of 19. And just a quick story about that, and then I'll move on. So I was at this Catholic school for two weeks. Why only two weeks? Well, because after two weeks, I got a call at my house. And it was from a teacher at my old school, Intercity. And she says, uh, hey, you're not here. And I said, yeah, we can't get a ride. And she says, we miss you, which surprised me. (laughs) We miss you. And I was hating life because I'm a fish out of water. And she says, uh, well, if we could arrange a ride for you, would you like to come back? And I said, yeah. And she gets with my mom, and they get with other people in the school, and you know they arranged for me to get to school. And I started school my 10th grade year, 10, two weeks late. But I went back to school there. And through the influence of that, that's how I came to Christ. Now, what would have happened to me if that gal hadn't called? And I hadn't gone back to school there. And Bob Curry, one of my teachers, hadn't called me into his athletic director's office during lunch uh, in my 11th grade year. And he pokes his head out and he says, Brown, we're all out there eating lunch. And he says, come in my office and bring your lunch. (laughs) So I go in his office, but he says, hey, during chapel today, during the invitation, when they were asking if you weren't sure if you were saved, I saw you raise your hand. I raise my hand all the time to that because I never knew. And he said, so I'd like to talk to you about that. And he did. And he clarified some things for me that I didn't understand. I didn't get saved at that moment. I didn't get saved until the year after I graduated. But all of that, Mary Lou Hage calling me when I was in 10th grade. And Bob Curry calling me into his office. And the influence of all that God used to bring me to himself. So don't ever underestimate the impact you can have just reaching out to to somebody. Uh, Mary Lou Hage is a... She's a uh, missionary now. She got married. She was single then. She got married. She's she's a missionary. And I've interacted with her since, and I've told her that story. She didn't even know all of that had come come to fruition. So, But anyway, it's not just Roman Catholicism. It's others as well that teach some form of the blood of Jesus doesn't cover it all. And the sacrifice of Christ doesn't do it all. There's something else that's got to be done. And whatever that something else is, Paul would have a very harsh verdict about that. All right. Page 19, then, uh, top. That first missionary journey takes them into the province of Galatia. And as I say, this is how most of the epistles, then, the letters in your New Testament were written. You see up at the top of page 19, the title is the Acts and the Epistles of the Apostles. The epistles are these letters, and these letters are written primarily to churches or leaders of churches. So the book of Galatians is written to address this problem that had arisen just within a couple of years after Paul and Barnabas had been there. And then, likewise, the letter to the Colossians is addressing problems that occurred after the church was established. And so here's what Gordon Fee, Gordon Fee has this book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. 
How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And that book will tell you what the title says, how to read it for all it's worth, and also how to interpret it for all it's worth. Now, we'll look at some interpretive principles in a couple of weeks here. But it's just a very, very, very helpful and a very readable, understandable book. But here's what he says. He says, one thing that all of the epistles, the letters have in common, is that they are all... uh, they are all called occasional documents. Occasional documents. That is, they're arising out of and intended for a specific occasion. Now, when, when they say occasional, he goes on to say, that is, they were occasioned or called forth by some special circumstance, either from the reader's side or the author's. Almost all of the New Testament letters were occasioned from the reader's side. So... Do you follow what he's saying there? There's some occasion that caused this letter to be written. So what was the instance, what was the issue or issues that were happening that occasioned the writing of this letter? And he's saying most of the time it was something happening on the reader's side, that they were having problems trying to reconcile what Paul had told them with what these other people are now telling them. So Paul writes to them, to address that occasion, that that issue. Uh, in the case of 1 Corinthians, he's writing to them to address the problems that he had learned about from the household of Chloe, chapter 1 tells us, and then that they had written to him about, and then he puts those all in a letter. And he, But that's what the occasion was. People had told them about the pro, him about problems, written to him about problems, and he, he wrote to address them. So most of the New Testament letters are written to address problems. What's that tell you about church life? No, really. Okay, so your church, this church, if problems arise in your church, don't be shocked. It's like virtually every church you read about in the New Testament had problems that had to be addressed. Even the model church in Thessalonica, he calls it a model church, but there were people there who were freeloaders. You know, they were not working for a living. And he has to he has to tell them very directly, you work for a living or don't associate with that person. Practice church discipline against them. That's in the model church. So that's what's meant by the fact that these are occasional documents. All right. Then you go to Acts 15. The Jerusalem Council. The first major issue in the early church was created by Gentiles becoming believers. The apostles were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The first believers were Jews. And most of them didn't think of Gentiles as a significant part of the church. But now with believers in Antioch and the first missionary journey concluded, uncircumcised Gentiles who knew nothing of Jewish customs or the Mosaic law were believing in Jesus as their God and Savior. Should these Gentile believers be made to keep the law? Should they be circumcised and keep Jewish sacred days and customs? The Jerusalem Council was organized to answer these questions. Their answer was no. Gentile believers do not need to become Jews. But in Acts chapter 15, that's, uh, that's the issue that they, that they addressed. And at the end of Acts chapter 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to go now on a second missionary journey. And Barnabas says... Let's take my nephew, Mark. Now, on the first missionary journey, Mark 
came back. If you look up at the top there, at the middle of the paragraph, it says John Mark turned back after they visited Cyprus. So he, he started and then he left. And Barnabas says, let's take him again. And Paul says, no. And at the end of Acts chapter 15, it says they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. That instead of taking Barnabas, Paul ends up taking uh, Silas with him. And Barnabas takes takes Mark. So that's, you know, Luke just leaves it there. They had this, they had this disagreement, sharp disagreement, sharp enough that they went their, their separate ways and they had their own their own ministry. Now the good news is that later Mark uh, it, uh, apparently gets back into the good graces of Paul, who was very ups- obviously upset enough to say he's not going. Now what before I tell you how he got back, I don't know how he did. I just know that he did. I'll tell you how I know he did in a minute. But what do you think about Paul doing that? Now, again, sometimes we're more pious than Paul. I mean, you look at what Paul wrote to the Galatians, and you look at the fact that he doesn't have time to mess around. I mean, he doesn't have time to mess around, okay? I'm doing busy, I'm doing serious work here, and only serious people are going with me, okay? Now, if, if we were to have something like that happen in our day, you know, everybody would say, wow, what a hard guy he is. What a, you know, can't you be a little bit compassionate? Okay, we got work to do here. If you're going to go, let me know. Okay, so that's what Paul. That's what Paul did. Uh, but later, he writes to the Colossians. Does Paul? And in uh, chapter four, uh, he says, "Mark." He mentions Mark by name and says, "He is useful for me in the ministry." Uh, mentions Mark by name. So there's apparently been some kind of reconciliation. Mark has uh, apparently acquitted himself well uh, in his ministry after that. But that was the end of Paul and Barnabas going together. Now in Acts chapter 16 through 18, there's the second missionary journey. Paul takes uh, Silas. The journey extended to Greece. Timothy joined them in Lystra and Luke and Troas. The principal city, however, was Corinth, where Paul stayed for a year and a half. So you keep seeing some of these cities that are named in these letters, right? So Galatians, and now you see... He spent a year and a half in Corinth, and later he would write two letters back to them, First and Second Corinthians. During this trip, Paul sent Timothy back to see how the Thessalonians were doing. Upon receiving a good report, he wrote the books of First and Second Thessalonians to them. Although not connected with Paul's journey, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark were written about this time. Now, this is uh, what I want to point out about the second missionary journey, and then we'll be done. But... The second missionary journey looks uh, very much like the first missionary journey. In fact, um, um, the process that Paul used on these missionary journeys uh, has allowed some who paid careful attention to his process to document what Paul would do when he would go out and proclaim the gospel and spread the Great Commission. Um, I have a chart in front of me that is actually in your Get a Life notes that we're going through on Sunday morning, so you'll see this chart in front of you. But in our remaining couple of minutes, I'll just tell you what the chart says. That Paul would go through a 10-step process when he would go out on these uh, journeys. And the first process was the missionaries would be sent, would be commissioned. 
So that's what we read back in Acts 13. They're sent. And then the audience is contacted. So he goes to a city and he contacts the audience somehow. He makes contact with the people there that he's wanting to give the gospel. And then the gospel is communicated. And then people are converted. And then believers are congregated. That's the fifth step. And then they're built up in their faith. Their faith is confirmed. Leadership is established. Believers are are commended for where they are and how they've grown. He writes back, continue or, or continues the, the relationships either directly or indirectly through others. And then sending churches are convened. So out of the churches he plants, they plant churches as well. And then the process starts over again. So he's got this 10-step process that he goes through on a consistent basis. Now, if he just did that on the first journey, that wouldn't be a pattern, right? But if you do that on the first one and the second one, this appears to be what what this thing is about. Is you're sent, and you contact the audience, and you preach the gospel, and people are converted, and you gather them into churches, and you build them up in their faith, and you establish leadership, and then the result of that is that that church reproduces itself as well. That's the process that Paul used. Now, this is my last statement. Uh, When we get together next week, I'll tell you how that whole process influenced the start of our church because our church was planted from another church. And then we had to figure out what we were going to do. And I had this brilliant idea. Let's see what Paul did. And then let's try to do in our setting something similar to what he did. I'll talk about that next week. All right, thanks.